well, you know what I mean by choose the battle or choose your winning streaks is what he said. Uh, and I thought that was that really made sense. Put your energy where you can be productive and give the others their due that they can work with. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Lakshmi Kumar, founder director of the Orchid School in Pune and an international educationist. Lakshmi, the welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Girish. Thank you, Jessica. I'm looking forward to hearing all about your story. Yeah. You know, Lakshmi Di and I met on LinkedIn, just like a lot of us do. Uh, but I did have the privilege and the honor of visiting with her in uh, Pune a couple of months ago when I was in India and got to learn a little bit more. But we don't really know um, enough about you, Lakshmi. I know you've been doing a lot of great things. Um, so please start us off with telling us about how did you end up where you are today and all the work that you're doing, not just at the school, but with also the collaboration with Sweden. Um, so yeah, please bring us up to speed. Yeah, let me just kind of make it a little story. The education training is in social work. Uh, from Tata Institute of Social Sciences, uh, specialized in medical and psychiatric social work, uh, because I had the strong need to understand the realm of uh, mental health, partly because of my own personal journey of my mother was bipolar. And I wanted to comprehend, uh, because we're talking about the 80s, mental health was not so well understood. So I thought, let me start with my own personal journey of understanding. And when I graduated and I knew that I wanted to work with children and mental health, because you've been there and done that, you know, to have uh, to understand uh, the whole gamut of mental health. So I joined uh, a child guidance clinic in Pune with a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist. And I started getting children for consulting and counseling. And I would knock on the parents' door and the school's door. I'm talking about 84. The schools would typically say that the problem doesn't lie with us. And the families would say the problem doesn't lie with us. And so obviously it was about uh, as if the problem just came in the thin air and kind of entered the child's mind and head. So out of sheer frustration, I left the child guidance clinic because I realized that if I want to have access to primary stakeholders in a child's life, the best place to start is a school. 84 schools, counseling was not the most common concept. So I approached a school and I said that give me a job where I can just be in touch with children. So I joined as a librarian. 
And I began to work with children. I began to work with training teachers and a lot of training for parenting and uh, challenges of parenting in today's times. Basically began to impact how we need to run school systems. Because I know that if schools can uh, create a very child-centric, more nurturing and more non-threatening environment, uh, I'm also talking about in a very Indian context, you know, where it's very, very competitive, very pushy, very authoritative, least democratic spaces. Uh, and I thought that we must change the way we run schools. So I began to work with the four pillars that I call it the four Ps. First was to work with people, uh, to sensitize them, to empower them, to, you know, make them part of the uh, in the school climate that we create. The second P was to, to create programs that are more relevant for today's students taking into context their, uh, you know, social, cultural context, and of course, take it to the global context. So the programs must be very, very locally rooted, but at the same time, it can be as global and as universal it can be. And the third one was, the third P was all about the policies. Policies in a way that really nurture children and not, uh, you know, uh, policies could be about the admission to the teaching, learning, to the assessments, to giving feedback, the crucial pedagogic processes. How do we make it more and more inclusive? How do we make it more and more child-centric? And the last and the most important is also about the processes of how do we select our faculty, how do we do the recruitment, how do we train them, how do we upskill them, how do we sensitize them, how do we give uh, support to them so that they in turn translate and transfer their own positive experiences. So I've been part of a three school projects and this is my third one. So I had the opportunity to conceptualize and create it, co-create it with a bunch of amazing educationists, the Orchid Schools. So I'm running 18th year now. Yeah, so I think it's that's the USP, is to build the school systems and school climate uh, that is so conducive for nurturing young people. And I know that schools, can make or mar child's life. You know, a lot of school neurosis, child neurosis is because of the way we deal with children's problems. Uh, you know, the earlier ways is to say that if you have problem, leave it outside the classroom. But we must understand that uh, children come as a whole to our classrooms and our schools. And uh, a lot of time, uh, parents need guidance. You know, that is one uh, qualification that doesn't need any qualification to become a parent, you know. But having become a parent, how do you equip yourself for uh, a lot of things? And how do you blend your own aspirations and your values and, uh, you know, be in sync with what the school says? So the child has more synergy between home and school. So while I was... Uh, into so in in some ways i embedded the social work principles of the yin and yang of empowering and sensitization because i feel that uh, you know when you work with the privileged it's important to train them for 
sensitizing and also to share power. And the other part of the yin and yang is to work with the, the underprivileged and help them, uh, sensitize them and empower them so that they can demand their rightful place. So school is a wonderful ecosystem for that. So Orchid School has a lot of that integrated into the curriculum. Yeah. Well, that's that's an amazing journey, Lakshmi. I'd, I'd like to learn more. But before we get to that part, I'm curious. So going back to your own schooling, can you think back and, and, and talk about what you were um, hoping to become when you grew up, when you were a high school student? And then obviously you said you went to Tata Institute of Social Sciences for some personal reasons. But prior to that, talk to us a little bit about that. You know, my schooling happened in a very, very small town uh, in the vernacular medium. But I think I had some amazing teachers uh, who were more supportive because, you know, my mother's bipolar was the day I was born. So they knew. And I think in their own ways, they were accommodating and they were acknowledging and they were supportive. And I knew that I couldn't have survived if it wasn't for those individuals who supported me. But more importantly, I also realized that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your beginning has been. It doesn't matter what language you studied in. But what matters is that uh, what I do with my circumstances. And I knew that I have to make it. There is no, op- no, no choice of break it. So I think I was uh, quite clear from the very beginning that, uh, you know, everything that happens in life has a reason, maybe not as so clear as a young child and a lot of more unanswered questions. But I think as you grow up and grow along, you realize that there must be a very strong reason for why you're going through what you're going through. And I have very, very strong memories of how school shouldn't be also. You know, my very early primary education was with the very missionary, very strong conversion agendas. And I remember saying that I think I've kissed more dead bodies because we used to be called for all the funerals that happen inside the church, you know. Or, you know, if Mother Superior's birthday, you will have to bring a fruit And my grandfather would say that we can only afford a lemon. So you hold this lemon and you're standing in the line. First is apples, then oranges, then musubi, and last are the lemon, you know. And sometimes the mother superior is not even around to take your lemon. And uh, schools can amplify your social background. Schools can actually discriminate. Uh, Schools can indoctrinate you know, and I, I, my grandfather saw that I was going to probably, uh, because every night he saw me kneeling down and calling Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, and I would go and tell him that, you know, today I kissed a man who was lying in a box, you know, so he would think, oh, shit, now this is going to be uh, another one. So he just took me out of that school and put me in a public, real public municipal corporation school. But what I'm trying to point out is the the possibilities, uh, the the, the power that school systems have for, you know, strong indoctrination and not being uh, given the answers to the questions that we will have. And very clearly, it can tell you where you belong. 
And it can do the other way too. You know, the best thing is that it has two sides of the coin. So I think if schools can be leveraged to bring in an, you know, concept of equity and, you know, free choice and free will of thinking and that promoting the why questions and that, that the answer lies in the larger ecosystem. And I think that I brought it very, very strongly from my childhood. I really resonate with what you're saying about um, how schools can amplify a child's anxieties or economic background or, you know, I mean, so many different things. I have a child at school now myself, and, and I don't know that his school is necessarily helping him with some of the things. So it really, that really hit, hits me. I wanted to ask you though, what were some of the challenges? So as you had this idea to start your own school based on all of the learning that you had had from your previous experiences, what were some really big challenges or some of the challenges you had to overcome as you were trying to set up the school, the ORCID school at the first time? Uh, the first thing is, uh, I have the thoughts and concepts and brain. I don't have the money. So like Bernard Shaw says that you put the money and I put the brain and not the other way around. So convincing the bunch of guys to say that, uh, you know, this is an idea that's worth exploring. So that's the first one. Oftentimes, uh, people with great idea may not have the money. But people with money do look for great ideas. So never to give up the idea and that synergy is possible. That's the first thing. But just because they put the money doesn't mean they agree with you on everything. So constantly educating your primary stakeholders, your founders or funders, so that when you leave, there is sustainable uh, sustainability of the concept. So I think it's very, very important to educate them, even if they don't understand, you know, they might have their own ideas. I remember when we started it, they said, Madam, we should do some international school. And they said, Jumbo kids, kangaroo kids, every kids, but except India and IB. Whereas I said that, you know, we can be as international and we don't have to go for an international curriculum right now. Uh, because international curriculum means nearly no Indian student would stay back in India for higher education. So I think it's important to acknowledge where they come from and educate them with loads and loads and loads of patience. Okay, so that's the first challenge that you need to uh, acknowledge and be ready for. The second one is, I think, uh, is to find a very strong core organizations don't stand on individual pillars, don't stand and sustain on leadership charisma of one or two teachers or one or two educators. So to bring in some like-minded people, we may have differences, but we do share that one core concept of child first, student first, you know, that was so important. So we did bring in some core team that believed in the core philosophy that this is the place where student is first and people first. The third, I think, uh, the challenge is that uh, when you're starting a school, racing against a well-established school, which probably has fancy infrastructure, air-conditioned classrooms, 
and uh, you know IT to showcase and lot of things. But uh, very important is not to get sucked into those peripherals and uh, keep a balance of what is required uh, more uh, in terms of an infrastructure that facilitates your ideology, but not to ever, ever give up on the ideological framework. The natural process is how do you enroll the team in envisioning, you know, beautifully Peter Senge talks about the shared vision. You know, how do you say that, you know, yes, this is what I came with, but how do we share it and make it a, you know, a collective ownership of it. And the fourth one, I believe, is giving some kind of a gestation period for organizations to, to be born and evolve. You know, I remember my board members said that, ma'am, we should start straight up to grade seven, which is often the practice in India. You open the school and straight up to grade seven from kindergarten. I don't believe in that. You know, it requires a team to evolve children to be growing up in certain organization culture and that they are product of an universe because they've been here for at least for 10, 12 years. And uh, my board was like, we are in a hurry. So of course I said that, uh, you know, you know that it takes nine months to have a baby, make a baby, at least give nine years to make an organization. I think a lot of times I see that investors are in a hurry and then you just bring in any student who is enrolling in grade seven and it's not a social learning because sometimes you might have four students in grade seven why would anyone change a school in grade seven so i think this readiness for evolutionary time you know that it takes time an ideological uh, embedding takes time people to come together and share this passion and ideology and vision takes time. And that you need to most importantly, build your ambassadors through experiences that's your students and parents, that takes time. And I think school shouldn't be rushed into completing and catching up on this quick growth, you know, overnight uh, transition. That was another challenge to convince the board. They did eventually listen to me. And parents also then realized that, you know, I mean, there are a lot of parents who say this, you know, oh, my child came in junior KG and graduated till the 12th grade in ORCID. So it's a full and full ORCID product. What does ORCID product mean? It's about going through the, you know, the journey of 12 years of, um, you know, ideological uh, framework of pedagogy. I think that's the uh, important thing. I think, yeah, pretty much these are what I would say challenges, but uh, they are the great opportunities because you're working with their minds and inviting them into the way that you want to envision the school. Well, clearly it's not an easy task, but you've done it well and you've succeeded and the Orchid School is flourishing. Why aren't other schools doing that? I think uh, the way they view education as some kind of uh, enterprise, which I don't have a problem because I know that the schools must be viewed as some kind of, you know, enterprise or a service industry. But when you put the profit before the quality, 
when you put the profit before the uh, gestation and evolutionary time, you lose the plot. And I, I have said that to my board members that students will come, people will pay the fees if you consistently commit to your promise and you deliver it. And I think a lot of time, big promises are given. I think uh, that accountability is missing. This uh, lack of insight, understanding on part of the business community, probably, uh, you know, leaders, and I see this as a new trend, educational leaders view this as a job rather than as a calling. So, you know, you don't want to uh, risk probably annoying the board members by saying that, hold on, wait. And uh, yeah, maybe we lack courage of conviction. Yeah. It's definitely a challenge, in a, especially in a country where there's such demand and a need for good quality educational institutions, and we have so many students left behind. Um, I, I just hope and pray that more people follow your lead. Yeah, and I, I, I know, and I also keep saying this, you know, that uh, it's we are 75-year-old democracy. We still can't uh, rationalize poor quality with numbers. You know, that this that narrative cannot happen. I mean, why only in school education we suddenly talk about numbers and poor quality rather than creating access and equity, you know, and so much money is pumped in both private public partnership and CSR funding. But I think there is somewhere the commitment to make it happen is missing. So I was listening to you and you mentioned back in the early 1980s, you know, counseling in high schools was not a thing. From my experience, and that's much more recent in India, it's booming. Certainly college counseling, guidance counseling, career counseling. What do you uh, attribute that rise in interest to counseling in schools in India? Was there an incident or was there something that started that got that movement started or is it kind of been a gradual change because of people like you and because people like you had experiences or backgrounds and they pushed for more of a counseling element in schools? So Jessica, there are two types of counseling that we're talking about. What is booming is uh, more like a, a you know, career guidance counseling or counseling for future, uh, which is really kind of kicked off quite a bit. And I think there is a huge visibility and probably there is big money involved. But the core counseling for mental health is still a non-start in India. I mean, how many schools have counselors? It's still a luxury. And a lot of time, counselors are used for substitute teaching and not really, uh, you know, for mental health and preventive work and uh, promotive mental health programs and uh, perhaps some first aid, emotional first aid intervention. So, you know, the, uh, the real, uh, you know, interdependent and interconnected and uh, you know, interdisciplinarity of mental health counseling is still not a very uh, big, uh, you know, visible number. 
whereas oh, you know suddenly this career guidance counseling is booming and uh, it's all over linkedin and all over and uh, because suddenly we are talking about the future of our students and i remember uh, uh, five seven years ago while i was talking in one of the nascom uh, conferences and i was i'm very connected to the higher education too so i'm one of those rare ones who had the privilege of working from k12 to higher education onwards both india and international and i remember working in the technical uh, college in solapur and the four years of technical education wasn't enough to make them employable so you know everybody was talking about employability employability and you know and so there was a lot of these modular courses on soft skill presentation interviews la 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 was pumped in and uh, then of course we very quickly made it modular and tick 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 you know kind of approach rather than bringing in any depth and i remember saying this that this is going to very soon be pushed to the schools because four years or five years of higher education is not enough to make a student employable with so many skill deficits and now here we are talking about grade 9 on future readiness skills and uh, building a resume training them for an interview and uh, you know rather than career guidance talking about career readiness and career adaptation and i think it's because uh, you know we kind of pushed so much on the higher education and the higher education was not able to cope with it and we realized it's too late you know when i remember training the engineering students for let's say a, a group discussion you know you can train them for how to do the group discussion but what to say in a group discussion it depends on what conceptual framework that you have if you're not been trained in that you know and if you have not really read many books and not done much of other interests Uh, you don't have much to say in a gd you know you just repeat what other person has said you know so i realized that this is something that schools will have to embrace so i think that's what has come to the point of how schools have to pick up those threads i don't know if i make sense you do yeah no that um. that makes complete that makes complete sense and you're right i guess i'm thinking of counseling in one way and your counseling is a separate thread of counseling obviously with both kinds of counseling you're guiding young people in different ways but you're listening to them their needs and assisting helping whatever you want to call it the young people to help them for their future whether it's career or or otherwise do you see that kind of moving together at some point at all just simply the idea of guiding young people in schools i mean would that help the mental health counseling at all the just that the fact that there's more attention on counseling in general does that make sense i wouldn't call it a very universal movement in india Mm-hmm. but let's say in school like orchid there is a point of convergence and that's important that uh, you know you know you've been working with children you're working with social emotional well-being and that is such a big component of becoming a workforce right and you know and we are all now looking at all the organizations investing huge amount in the social emotional well-being whereas i feel that's a foundation for creating healthy workforce so there is a point of convergence 
there is a point of a counselor bringing in her insight about is this career really suitable for you considering you know your uh, emotional uh, social framework we are not making judgments and saying that you're not suitable i think dropping those questions are very very important that you know everybody is not cut for everything you know and uh, everybody can't be overridden with what is a fad in terms of career choices you know sometimes we need to give them those insights and perspectives and say are you sure that you can really handle it you know or are you sure that you want to take this path at this point of time when you're going through let's say an identity crisis let's say a family relationship uh, fragility so i think there has to be and there should be and there is a possibility of convergence and if they are doing a dual role nothing like it and then you have professional support like what girish is bringing in for us but uh, the whole thing is uh, held by our counselors yeah yeah, yeah. i want to go back to what you said earlier you said being an educator is a calling um and i'm assuming as you are going through your high school and early career there were a lot of people that had a very positive impact on you you alluded to some of your early educators can you think of some key people that have really kind of bent your destiny as you've gone through uh your career over the years and i i know for a fact that you have a major influence not just your team at the orchid school but others around the country so maybe reflect on that a little bit as well uh most influential person uh is joe spall you know i was just about 24 wanting to change the world and uh, wanting to touch lives and uh, i remember five days of workshop by joe spall a teacher a mathematics teacher but who was obviously you know teaching us uh, how to teach and i remember him asking this question first to all of us some 40 educators you know so introduce yourself and each of us introduce oh i'm a maths teacher for past 10 years i'm a science teacher i'm a geography teacher i'm a mental health specialist all that so he said so are there any who really teach children and he said that you you focus on subject must be move to the subjects that you teach not the subject that you teach and i thought that was a most powerful message you know that i had it when i was 24 and he said that if you are 30 years in teaching is it that you made notes the first year and you repeated it 30 years you know and i thought that how beautifully he said that we can't take our uh, students for granted that what i prepared the last year would be okay for this year you know do i review do do i reflect do i you know reframe because i see each of my student group as unique and not 30 years i can just repeat the same lesson plan so you know that was someone who just gave me i think uh, you know the core philosophy of what education must be of course yeah maybe i should say one more person that i worked with uh, is dr roy basker he is no more he is one of the world's well known philosopher uh, he has a chair in oxford if you look at his work and just 
out of the blue, I ended up working with them as an international secretary for four years. And when I joined him, I had no clue what I was going to do. You know, he was this larger than life figure and publishing books that were so voluminous from a Marxist philosophy to, you know, East and West and all the traditions of religion. And sometimes, and he called it meta-reality. Sometimes I didn't even understand, but I was a secretary. But what I learned, two lessons that he really gave me that I still hold it very true, that one day I saw him writing by hand, you know. So, no, I saw him typing. And whereas I was actually transcribing a lot of his lectures. And I said, oh, you know to type, Roy. He said, of course. But, and then he said this, you know, I must do only what, uh, I must do things that only that I can do. If someone can do it, I should ask them to do it. So I put my energy. Well, you know what I mean by choose the battle or choose your winning streaks is what he said. Uh, and I thought that was that really made sense. Put your energy where you can be productive and give the others their due that they can work with. And uh, the way he interviewed me for two days and, uh, you know, he 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 kind of, challenged all my notions of what I thought was I was very liberal, I was very free, I was very open-minded. But every time I looked at him and I said, am I really keen to work with this guy? Because he he was this huge, towering fellow, uh, you know, English, Punjabi, uh, you know, family background. And he would come and wear this bright orange silk dress with bright socks. And, uh, you know, when he walks into the hotel room in the lobby, everybody would look and, you know, he had this very effeminate, uh, you know, he had long hair, like the Ram, you know, Paramahamsa Yogananda. And I was so worried about working with the personality like him. And I realized that I had my prejudices and my biases about who I should work with and how he should look like. And I thought that I need to get over my hypocrisy of uh, you know, my views of how people should look. And I can say that uh, he helped me through the journey of my own self-development. And he would make me sit in the classroom when he's lecturing in IIT or to the professors or to the Marxist philosophers. And he would tell me, that uh, Lakshmi signal if I'm making sense, you know, because he had this uh, issue of reading cues, facial cues. And I think he showed me that how we can be interdependent and how we can acknowledge our weaknesses and our low points and how we can galvanize and leverage somebody's support and that there is nothing wrong with it. You know, I think he demonstrated to me that so, yeah, I have this problem and I can just take help. Mm-hmm. Seek help. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think this should be a master class in being an educator and being a, a leader. Maybe we should do another <laughs> master class. <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, um, as we wrap up here, we're coming up on the hour. Uh, we always like to end on a much more lighter note with some quick fire questions just to kind of I, get yeah, on the personal yeah. side. Um, so you're obviously well read. Uh, I'm sure you continue to read. 
what's your favorite book that you've ever read or what's a book that you're currently reading? Uh, currently, I'm reading a book called uh, The House of the Mosque. Uh, but my favorite author is uh, Friedman, Thomas mm. Friedman and uh, Edward Said. Especially, I think, again, in the very impressionable years when I read the Orientalism yeah. and the way that he introduces the concept of the other. Yeah. yeah. And I had Thomas to read that. Oh, sorry. I was going to say I had to read that in grad school. So, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will shoot my quick fire question at you. It sounds like you are knee deep in, well, no, neck deep in your work and schools and, you know, intercultural training. What do you do for fun? What do you do to decompress, to take some time off just for you? Travel. Ah. Travel, travel, travel. And, you know, I also do some cooking. My daughter has a cloud kitchen. So I go on Sundays to curate some authentic traditional Southern cuisine. It's distressing. Yeah. And I'm really, not going to test to the flavors because I've had the lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And wow. travel, cooking, reading, and hang out with friends. Sounds I'm, good. I, I, I also love to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Under, yes. Underappreciated skill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have to have very big things to de-stress, right? That's true. That is true. I love to travel. Uh, But, you know, a lot of people feel like travel is actually stressful and it actually adds to your stress and and, and all all that. How do you travel and and what are your favorite places to travel to? I mean, travel expands. So I don't see that as a stress at all. Maybe there are some irritation, like the number of documents you have to submit to get a visa (laughs) You know, all that. But I think, uh, you know, eventually you look at the bigger picture. Uh, I'm also very, very fond of uh, wildlife safaris in India. So we nearly, nearly go every year at least two safaris. And imagine sitting in this morning minus six degrees in an open jeep to look for a tiger or some animals. I think you just come back completely rejuvenated. Yeah. That's yeah, so. awesome. I love that answer. Yeah. 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 No, I concur. There are minor irritants along the way, but there's nothing yeah. like travel. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, I'm jealous. I need to do some of those wildlife safaris in India. Yeah. I have yeah, so yeah. many things I want to do in India, but I never do. I just go work and I come back. Every time you come to India, you should just keep three or four days just for this Explore India. That's a yeah. great suggestion. I should definitely do that. Mm-hmm. Any parting thoughts for us, Lakshmi? I think stay alive and stay young. Thanks for listening to Destiny Vendors. We'll be taking a short break over the summer. If you'd like to be on a future episode, feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.